0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today I'm going to start on the book of Acts. I'm going to look in chapter 1 and go through the first 13 verses. The subject in Acts, after we start out with an introduction of Acts, we're going to see Jesus ascending into heaven, the ascension, and then in our next audio we'll... At the last part of chapter 1, we're going to see how the disciples go to the upper room as directed by Jesus to wait for the Holy Spirit to fall. And before that happens, they choose Matthias to replace Judas. So let's do an introduction to the book first. Who is the author? The author is Luke. He's not mentioned in the book, but other evidence convinces us that he's the author. Evidence outside the scripture and evidence is from the book itself. Nobody disputes that. Luke was a physician. This cannot be proved conclusively from his vocabulary, but his writings have words and phrases that make him sound like a doctor. And in fact, in Colossians 4.14, Paul, the apostle, calls Luke a doctor. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. What's the date of the book? Two possible dates the scholars debate between 70, 63 A.D. or 70 A.D. or even later. The arguments in favor of 63 A.D., are as follows. Luke makes no allusion in the book to events after Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome. Luke makes no allusion to, to the persecution of Christians under Nero, which happened about AD 64. There's no mention of the martyrdom of Peter and Paul in Rome, which happened about anywhere, 67, let's say, somewhere in the 65, 66, 67. There's no mention of that. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Luke never gives the outcome of the trial that Paul was waiting for in Rome. Well, all those events happen right around 64, 65, 66, and 67. They're not mentioned, so let's say 63. I think that's pretty conclusive as far as I'm concerned. Those who hold a later date say they have to get around the the evidence I just presented, and they say that all of those things were not mentioned because they were not within the scope of the purpose of the book, that Paul was trying to show the spread of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Rome, and the accounts accounts of his martyrdom or the destruction of Jerusalem are not relevant to that purpose. In my humble opinion, that is sucking air. That's a very weak argument. So we're going to say 63 A.D. or so. What's the importance of the book of Acts? It's a bridge between the Gospels and the Apostles' letters. The book gives us a life of Paul, from which we derive a background for Paul's letters. In fact, when you study the the letters of Paul, it's easy just to plug them into the first, second, third journey, whatever, or afterwards plug them into the book of acts and you get a good chronology the book of acts gives us a history of the first 30 years of the church as the niv study bible says it gives us a quote an understanding of the principles that ought to govern the church of any age and i agree that agree with that thoroughly i like the apostolic church because that was the church that was the church when the church was young it was started by apostles who were trained by jesus they were the closest to the words of the master the church was not encrusted with centuries of idiotic ecclesiastical traditions and liturgical smells and bells. None of that stuff. It was simple back then. Unfortunately, most of the principles of, that you can see in the book of Acts are ignored by modern Christians. They say, oh, the book of, of Acts is history, not doctrine. It has nothing to tell us what we ought to do. So we can just go out and do what's right in our own eyes. They ignore a pattern hermeneutic these people do. These people do. I just had a discussion with someone. Hey, Paul said very clearly, I expect you to follow my traditions, my paradosis, my traditions, my practices. I expect you to follow them. And this is what Paul did. He set up the church in the book of Acts. Not just Paul, but the other apostles. And that's how we ought to do church. That has radical implications for us. Not to mention about radical pneumatological implications, too, when we talk about the Holy Spirit. There was subsequence. They converted, they believed, and then they were believed then they were filled slash baptized with the Holy Spirit after they were converted. Five times actually, or four times, I should say, in the book of Acts. A lot of stuff in here that if you look at the pattern and follow it, it will change your life. Or you can listen to the narrow minded theologians that say if Paul doesn't say it, we can do whatever we want to. I mean you could be meeting you a house in your a church in your house, eating the Lord's Supper is a full meal every day. Instead of listening to boring sermons, you'll be encouraging, exhorting one another, one to another. Lots of stuff in the book of Acts if you want to look at the book of Acts as normative and not just as mere history. Mere dead, long gone, it's gone with the wind, we don't want to have it back again type of history. If you want to look at the book of Acts that way, you miss a lot of blessings. Now what are the purposes of the book of Acts? to present a history this history distinguishes christianity from eastern religions who of course eastern which of course are not based in history they're based on having lived in china for 23 years and have seen kind of a taste of that i don't like that stuff i remember i had a professor at my college here in america a fellow professor who was a, a movie critic and he said that when he first got started in college, he was studying Eastern religions, and he quit studying them. And I said, why? He said, because all Eastern religions try to do is to convince you that nothing exists. And he decided that was fruitless. And I thought, yes, sir. But Christianity is rooted in history. It's history, history, history. Jesus Christ came. He was crucified, dead, buried, raised, resurrected. That happened at a particular geographical spot on this planet at a certain chronological time, history, time and space. It's important, and Acts roots us in history. Another purpose of the book of Acts is to present a defense against both pagans and Jews to show that Jesus really did come, and he really was the Son of God. The purpose of the book of Acts is to provide a guide for churches that came later. Well, as I just finished talking about, unfortunately, we don't listen to that today in modern 21st century, but that was the purpose of it, to show People how, as in all the churches of the saints, Paul liked to say, I praise you for following me, following my traditions. So there's some example for us if you want to know how to do church. The book of Acts shows the triumph of Christianity in the face of bitter persecution. The success of Christianity shows the church was not the work of man. Because I'm telling you, there's no reason the church is still here today. It should have been snuffed out with all the persecutorial persecutorial powers that were arrayed against it, both by the Jews and the Jews. And the Romans, the land beast and the sea beast of the book of Revelation, trying to persecute the church. The church should have been wiped out, but it wasn't, because it was supernaturally preserved by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Now here's some characteristics of the book of Acts. The book is characterized by sharp, precise details. Archaeology confirms that Luke uses the precise details of the time and place recorded. No account in ancient literature gives a superior account of nautical details than Luke does. For example, in chapter 27, in the description of Paul's shipwreck, this has all been backed up by archaeology. The scope of the book, another characteristic of the book is its scope. It covers 30 years from the ascension, 80-30 or so, to somewhere in the early 60s. So it's about 30 years. It covers the land from Jerusalem to Rome and points in between. Going north and northwest, Jerusalem, Samaria, Antioch, Asia Minor, Ephesus, Athens, Greece, and all the way over to Rome and Italy. The style of the book, it's characterized by literary excellence, and at times Luke uses good classical Greeks, at other times he uses Aramaic expressions. Luke uses language appropriate to the time and place he's writing about. His Aramaic Aramaisms cease when Paul leaves Palestine for Hellenistic areas as he heads out to Asia Minor. The book is dramatic. Luke includes many speeches. For example, Peter's famous Pentecostal sermon. And the speeches are carefully spaced and and well balanced between Peter and Paul. The book is objective. Acts records failures as well as successes. For example, the discourse between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews... That's nothing for the early church to be proud of of course but nonetheless Luke put it in his book. How about the discord between Paul and Barnabas on the after the first missionary journey or during the first missionary journey for that matter that was not exactly a highlight of either one of their ministries but it was recorded Luke put it down. How about the legalism of the church as exhibited at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 Luke wrote it down. This is a good history it's objective it's not just trying to cover over the warts of the early church. So let's start with the book, Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, which is the first book that Luke is referring to here? That's the gospel of Luke. Luke addressed the first book to the same person, Luke 1, 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an early account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who is this guy for Theophilus? It is not, it's not known who he is. There's some speculation because in Luke, Luke uses the title "most excellent Theophilus." So the speculation is that Theophilus is a civil magistrate in a high office, which is reasonable, I think. You notice that in this first book, Luke says that that Luke in the book of Luke has dealt in the first book, the book of Luke has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is now the apostles are going to continue what Jesus did and teach. And notice, do and teach works and doctrine, works and teaching. Those are the two things that characterize Jesus' ministry. He did all kinds of miracles, and he did all kinds of teaching. And you can see that as you go through the Gospels. Let's go to verse 2 in Acts chapter 1. Until the day, well, let me finish reading. Let's, let's read one verse 1 to get some context. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, that's when he was resurrected, excuse me, that's when he That's when he ascended into heaven, after he had given commands of the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke, in the first book, is written all the way up right to the ascension, and then he's going to start up in the second book with the ascension, which happens right here in chapter 1. And this ascension took place after he Jesus had given commands to the apostles through the holy spirit now some people like to say that these commands after the ascension would be through the holy spirit even though right here he says the commands were given through the holy spirit before the ascension it says until Jesus he wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, so in other words, the ascension, the taking up was done after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, so that means the commands to the Holy Spirit through the apostles were before the ascension. Well, then also, obviously, after Jesus was taken up, the apostles received their commands from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at verses in Luke that tie Luke together with Acts. Here's the last scene in Luke's gospel, which becomes the first scene in the book of Acts. Luke's 24, verses 50 through 52. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted for them and was carried up into heaven. There's the ascension. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now we go to Acts 1, verse 10, dropping down a little bit from where we are in Acts 1. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Then Jesus, who was taken this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." And so there you have the two books that are tied together perfectly at the very end of the 40 days of Jesus' post-resurrection, human existence. One of the last things he did was up in Galilee, he met with the disciples on a hill in Galilee, 11 of them, and he gave them the Great Commission. And then he came back down to Bethany, talked with them a little bit, told them to wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem, not many days hence. And then he ascended into heaven 10 days later at Pentecost, which was 50 days after the resurrection. The ascension was 40 days after, Pentecost was 50 days after. So he ascended, said, wait for me. And right before he ascended, he said, wait for me to receive the Holy Spirit, go to Jerusalem. So he ascends. After 40 days after the resurrection, and 10 days later, 50 days after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell. So it all ties together historically. Now, the NIV Study Bible makes a point about this Holy Spirit giving commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. The NIV Study Bible says that all through the book, all through the book of Acts, Luke stresses the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's true. It's the acts of the apostles. is the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. All right, so Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. I don't know what that means except that because he was the, giving them commands verbally while he was there in in the, in the in his physical presence. I assume it means that his commands were given under the supervision of the Holy Spirit to the apostles even when he was doing it verbally. But even when he's gone up into heaven, still spiritually the the instructions come from the Holy Spirit. Now, Adam Clark says there's a distinction between before, uh, commands from the Holy Spirit before the, before the ascension and after the ascension. Here's what he says, quote, Previously to this, we may suppose that the disciples, that means previously to the ascension, we may suppose that the disciples were only on particular occasions made partakers of the Holy Spirit, from, but from this time it is probable that they had a measure of the supernatural light and power constantly resident in them. So Clark makes a distinction in the way the Holy Spirit was directed to the apostles, the commands of Jesus were given to the to the disciples before and after the ascension. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. I think that's speculative. We go to Acts 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive. That means he appeared in his resurrected body, for 40 days during the post resurrection pre ascension period after his suffering that means after his crucifixion on the cross how did he present himself by many proofs now how many resurrection appearances did he make it depends on how you count them but you can get at least 8 or 9 maybe even 10 let me get, let me tell you what they were he appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary that's in Matthew 28 he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that 's luke twenty four he appeared to simon peter privately luke twenty four thirty four that was when the apostles meeting on resurrection sunday night uh, were talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who had come back who had met the apostles there, and they said, The Lord has appeared to peter ah right, so there's there's another appearance to peter, and then of course, the appearance to Uh, The ten of the disciples, minus Doubting Thomas, minus Thomas Didymus, and minus Judas, of course, that was on resurrection Sunday night. And then eleven disciples with Thomas present eight days later, on the next Sunday night. That's another appearance. And then we have the seven apostles by the Sea of Galilee, when they had the miraculous draft of fish, and Jesus cooked them some fish and bread that was another appearance and then we have a appearance to james the brother of the lord mentioned in first corinthians fifteen seven. And then we have another appearance on the a mountain near galilee the so-called i called it the great commission assembly when jesus gave the great commission there were 11 disciples there at that time and Corinthians mentions five hundred, which might have been the same time on that mountain in assembly uh, uh, that mountain in Galilee when Jesus met with the other disciples, or it could be a separate appearance. But my point is, is however you slice and dice it and count it, there were lots of times that Jesus appeared to people alive. He appeared to so many people that nobody could say, Uh-uh, he didn't really rise again from the dead. All they had to do was go talk to people. Did you see him? Did you hear? I saw him. I saw him personally. There's no doubt about it. He's alive. So that's what the word proofs mean. He had to prove that he resurrected. It's not, it's not a foregoing conclusion. Just because you re- rise from the dead, people might not want to believe it. Jesus went to great trouble to prove that he had resur- resurrected from the dead so that skeptical people like yours truly would have proof that, hey, yeah, I did. I did rise from the dead. So quit doubting it like Thomas Now, notice what Jesus did during this 40-day period. He talked about the kingdom of God. Now, here at the first of the book of Acts, the kingdom of God is mentioned. The kingdom of God is also mentioned at the end of the book. In Acts 28, 30-31, he, Paul, lived there in Rome under house arrest two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming what? The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance the kingdom of God is where God rules. God is the king. He has subjects. He has citizens. That's us. It includes the church, both deceased in heaven and on the earth now and future and the future elect people who are going to come in later, the kingdom of God. And it's funny that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and Paul talked about the kingdom of God, but they didn't use the word church like we use it. Why is it that we don't like to talk about the kingdom of God? I don't know. Maybe it's just a historical thing that happened for no reason, but we need to talk about the kingdom of God. I'm out here spreading the kingdom. When I'm, when, you, when you tell people about Jesus, you should say, I'm spreading the kingdom of God. You're going to be a citizen of the king. Jesus being resurrected, going around giving proofs, going back to the resurrection that I just mentioned. Somebody, I lost the quote, but somebody had this quote. This is the great burden of apostolic preaching. The resurrection, the resurrection. So, if... Some skeptic wanted to deny God and deny Jesus. What's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to deny the resurrection. And that is why it is incumbent upon us to preach the resurrection. That Jesus rose again from the dead. You know, I've been thinking about a lot of times when I've witnessed to people, I always ask them to believe in their heart, confess that Jesus has forgiven their sins and so forth. And I never say confess that he rose again from the dead. It might be a good thing to do that. You know, say, hey, Jesus rose again from the dead. That's conquering the sin that he's delivering you of. Acts verse. Chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, with the disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. Now, he's probably here at Bethany or the Mount of Olives, somewhere near Bethany on the Mount of Olives, where he ascended into heaven. But Adam Clark says he's still on the mountain at Galilee at the end of Matthew 28, a few days previous, short time previous, I don't know doesn't matter. The point is is that they were supposed to not scatter when Jesus rose. Not scatter, but for ten days they were to hang around Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Now, what is the promise of the Father? That's, of course, the Holy Spirit, as the NIV Study Bible says. Jesus had promised them this many times before. And just to show you how often he had, John... I'm going to give you three verses from John 14, John 15, and John 16. John 14:26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, there's the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15:26 through 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, see it's the promise of the Father. The Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, the promise of the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, John 16, verses 12 through 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So when Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me, the heard refers to the scriptures that I just read to you in John fourteen fifteen and 16. Now let's turn to verse 5 in Acts chapter 1. For John baptized with water, Jesus continues, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now that phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, is later, is not used in Acts actually when the baptisms of the Holy Spirit occur. That's in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, and Acts 19, five different occasions Phrases such as, receive the Holy Spirit, or be filled with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit fell upon them. The term baptized was not used, but since Jesus is referring to the Acts at Pentecost, which were then subsequently repeated in different places, then we can take the term baptized with the Holy Spirit and use it in place of filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in my opinion, there's been a lot of non-charismatic theologians who've really screwed this up. They don't even like to use the term baptize of the Holy Spirit. And I guess they say, oh, that reminds me of Pentecostals. And I don't want to be a Pentecostal. I don't want to speak in tongues. I don't want to believe miracles happen today. And that could be why they're doing that. I don't know. But there's nothing wrong with that phrase, folks. Jesus used it. And he was referring to an act which was called filling of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to say that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you, don't want to, and you want to leave out all the charismatic Pentecostal stuff, fine. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not many days since, namely 10 days, Assuming this talk to the disciples happened right when he was ascended, which it sounds like it was. Not many days from now it would be 10 days from now because... The ascension was on day forty after the after after Resurrection Sunday and the and Pentecost was fifty days. That's that's in the that's the fifty day period is established by the law in Leviticus. So it was ten days. They were supposed to wait. Verse six, chapter one. So when they had come together, they the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom in Israel? This is when they had come together in Bethany, probably. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what made what made the disciples worry about the coming of the Messianic age at this particular time? Restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, there's two things, I would say. The first thing is Jesus had told them about receiving the Holy Spirit a few days hence. He says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And they probably associated that in their mind with Ooh, receiving the Holy Spirit. Sounds like we're going to have the Messianic kingdom. That could be. That's the NIV Study Bible's idea. Here's Adam Clark's idea. Jesus had just given... The disciples of the Olivet Discourse, that was, what, 40-something, 40, 40 40-plus 40 days earlier, Tuesday of Passion Week. And what did he say in the Olivet Discourse? Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age?" So they were worried about the end of the age, the end of the and Messian- the end of the Jewish age, and the coming of the Messianic age. They were worried about it. Uh, they were—I shouldn't say worried about it—they were concerned to know when it was going to happen. So this is, makes sense that here, right when Jesus is about to be ascended that they're going to say, ooh, it's time to to restore the kingdom. Now, it's a little bit questionable as to what they meant by restoring the kingdom. Well, first of all, let's look at the phrase, this time, Lord, will you at this time, what time? Probably talking about the time when the Holy Spirit was going to fall, because Jesus had just predicted that. And so they say, great, we're going to get the Holy Spirit. Is this when the kingdom's coming back? You've been talking about restoring the kingdom for a long time. You just gave us the Olivet Discourse 40-something days earlier. And you talk about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. You always talk about the kingdom. Was this when the kingdom's coming, at when Pentecost happens? Well, actually, that's when the kingdom was established, was it not? The spiritual kingdom, the church. And so the answer to that question was uh, yes, really. But Jesus didn't answer. He didn't answer yes. We'll see that in the next verse. We need to look at the question of what were the disciples thinking when they asked, "Will you restore the kingdom to Israel?" Now it could be that they were asking. About when the Jewish kingdom would be restored to Israel as being separate from the Romans and out from under the thumb of the Romans, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel and take it away from the Romans? That's one option. And I think that's what it was. Actually, that's, uh, Adam Clark says that's probably what. but at, at what Jesus was what the disciples were referring to, but Adam Clark says it's another thing they could have been referring to. He goes through some complicated stuff about the Greek meaning of restore, which I don't understand, I'm not going to talk about. But he says, on this other interpretation, the disciples may be supposed to ask, having recollected our Lord's prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse and the whole Jewish commonwealth, Lord, will thou at this time destroy the Jewish... The disciples could be thinking, Jesus, are you going to destroy the Jewish commonwealth at this time when the Holy Spirit comes? Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, when you destroy the old Israel, the Jewish rabbinic order, when you destroy that Jewish commonwealth, which opposes the truth, in order that your true spiritual kingdom may be set up over the land? Well, that could be, but the problem with that is you've got to assume the disciples knew what was going on and happened. Most of the time, it seems to me, they rarely knew what Jesus was talking about. So for them to be thinking about Jesus restoring a a spiritual kingdom to Israel when the Holy Spirit came, I don't think they were that spiritually perceptive yet. I think they were thinking about, hot dog, we're going to be free of the Romans. I don't think they've escaped that. I I, I think that they were thinking, hot dog, we're going to be ruling in a kingdom, a separate political kingdom. I don't think they really understood this spiritual idea of the church yet. Verse seven in Acts chapter one, He Jesus said to them the disciples, "It is not for you to know times or season that the Father is fixed by His own authority." So Jesus says, uh, "Yeah." And then this is a little puzzling to me. Why didn't Jesus just tell them, "Look, the Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm starting a spiritual kingdom." He he had to let them figure it out. He wouldn't just tell them, "I'm not talking about a, a spiritual kingdom." Later on, when he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 87, 1 Thessalonians 5 1 through 2, now concerning the times of the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, you're not going to know when it is. He was not big on setting dates. It's amazing to me how many prophecy experts today know the dates of everything. Jesus is coming in 1988. I remember getting that book in the uh, mail. When I was a principal of a Christian school in 1988, uh-huh. well, off a few years. It didn't happen. Of course, when it didn't happen, he sent out another book the next year. Oh, my calculations were off one year. Jesus is coming in 1989. Morons that do this kind of stuff. Listen, if Jesus said don't calculate the time of the season, whether he was talking about establishing the spiritual kingdom at Pentecost or whether he's talking about establishing his, his church on earth with the destruction of Jerusalem in 870, I don't care. It wasn't their time to know now they did know uh, they did have a general time indicator and it was if Jesus was referring to the establishment of the church physically uh, as being separate from the Jewish nation when the Jewish nation was destroyed, because he said, all these things, the destruction of the temple were going to happen before this generation takes place. Matthew 24 verse 30 30 something. So he did give them a general idea, but you're not not going to know. The day of the hour. You're not going to know it particularly. So quit worrying about it. He tells them in verse 8, This is what you need to be worried about. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This, of course, is one of the Pentecostals and Charismatics' favorite favorite verses. They emphasize the power, and power, of course, refers to doing miracles, which, of course, refers to doing works that will lead people to, to heaven for signposts, not to mention the fact, healing people. Now I know that there are certain people, like John MacArthur and his buddies, they go around constantly talking about, we can't do miracles, today. they're all fake, and all charismatics are crooks. And basically he did say that on an audio, you ought to watch it on YouTube. There's not one good thing, not one good thing charismatics have done for the church, that's what he says. Nonsense, if it's just receiving power, so that you can witness, I guarantee you, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, When the Holy Spirit came upon me, not in regeneration, but in order to receive power to witness, my whole life changed. And I can tell people, I mean, I ended up going to China witnessing behind the bamboo curtain, witnessing the communists all the time. That never would have happened, in my humble opinion, if I had not received power when the Holy Spirit came upon me. And I'm sorry that the charismatic movement, which I had to leave because of all the nonsense in it, I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry about the the quasi Christian science faith message. I'm sorry about the whack. I'm sorry about charismatics strutting around on a state, women strutting around in skin-tight leotards waving banners all over the place doing choreography. I'm sorry about the fire tunnels and the grave sucking and the emma and all the absolute frippin' nonsense that has gone on in the charismatic movement. I really am sorry for that, but I want to tell you something. In the Bible, not in the charismatic movement, but in the Bible there is very strong indication that you can receive power from the Holy Spirit and be a witness to Jesus. That's sort of an application point, if you will. Now, where were these disciples to be witnesses? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. I believe that there is a literary structure to this, starting out Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit fell, and then Judea, which is the area just around Jerusalem. So as the word spreads, as the gospel is preached, the, the witness goes around to Judea. And then as you get north of Judea, which is the next area north of Samaria. So that's what's mentioned next, Samaria. And then to the end of the earth, which would include, of course, Antioch and, and, and Anatolia, Asia. Asia, And then Ephesus and Asia Minor there on the coast, the western coast of Anatolia. Then we cross over to Greece and Athens. Then we go to Rome to the ends of the earth. Okay, but that's exactly what happened. You will be my witness, Jesus said. He didn't say, you might be. He said, you will be. This was a prophecy, a prediction. It came to pass. It's true. Now, even though this gives a virtual outline of the whole book, as in every study Bible, the witness starting in Jerusalem and spreading south and north to Judea and Samaria, and the word finally escapes the Palestinian area and heads all over the world, and Acts chapter 1 through 9 covers Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and Acts 10 through 28 covers the ends of the earth, as James Foster and Brown says, Acts 1 through 9, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. All of that's true, but this is how that literary structure, in my humble opinion, is misused by anti Pentecostal theologians and Bible scholars. They say that Luke, well, they say what they say is that God chose four places to fill out this structure. He let the holy spirit fall one time in Jerusalem and then he let it fall one time in Samaria Acts 8 Jerusalem's Act 2 then he, Acts 2 then he let it fall one time in Samaria Acts 8 and then to the end of the earth that would be Cornelius's house in Caesarea at Acts 10 and then at Ephesus 8, Acts 19 the ends of the earth and therefore that is all that it happened that's the only time it happened and those times it doesn't happen today it's not for everybody it's just for those particular people back then and I don't have time to go into all the Pentecostal, charismatic theology on that, and, and and you know that's a whole. I've got a YouTube video on that if you're interested in that. I got a whole series on that. Uh, I can't. Go, I don't have time to go into that. But I will say this: that I don't understand why these anti-charismatic theologians just don't realize the obvious here. What Luke did, yeah, he had a literary structure. And he was trying to show, but what he did is he picked out places where the Holy Spirit was falling on everybody all over wherever they were human beings that heard the gospel, they told them about getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Luke picked out of those occurrences four examples which fit his literary structure. But that doesn't mean that those were the only four places that the people were receiving power from the Holy Spirit coming from on high. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means Luke picked four Examples to fit his structure. And besides, Acts 9 doesn't fit that structure. And Acts 9, Paul, after being saved, brother Paul, after being saved, after seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, he got prayed by Ananias that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that one doesn't fit anybody's literary scheme. So, enough ventilating over that. Now this idea of being witnesses. You will be my witnesses all over from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This is a big theme throughout Acts. I'm going to read you six scriptures talking about witnesses in the book of Acts. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Acts 3.15, and you kill the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 5.32, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to you, to those who obey him. As given to those who obey him, Acts ten thirty nine. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, Acts thirteen thirty one. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people, Acts twenty two fifteen. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. Now. That's evidentiary apologetics, folks. You know, I, I've been listening to a lot of presuppositional apologetics, and I really appreciate it learned a lot from it. But, folks, I mean, come on. There's nothing wrong with giving evidence about Jesus' resurrection. The apostles did it. I, I, the next time I see a presuppositional apologetic I, apologist, I need to ask these six verses, what do we do with that? Why? If the apostles were so busy using presuppositional apologetics, why were they talking about witnessing all the time? Witness all the time. That's evidence. And John, in the book of John, he talked about testimony all the time, giving evidence. Now, I I, I agree, that's not going around talking about the five five Aristotelian proofs of the existence of God as adopted by Thomas. I agree, they didn't do that, and I don't think that does much good myself. But nothing wrong with evidence. Nothing wrong with presuppositional apologetics either, if you don't exclude evidence, in my humble opinion. All right, before we leave verse 8, let's look at this concept of power but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you power is kind of a kind of a plain vanilla english word the greek is dunamis here's what adam clark says about power energy communicated by the holy spirit to disciples to work miracles is particularly intended i think that's exactly what it's talking about it's talking about power to do miracles not power to talk eloquently but power to do miracles and unfortunately many modern people limit that power to the first century and that probably explains why the churches of these modern people are generally devoid of miracles nothing wrong with power folks nothing wrong with miracles acts chapter 1 verse 9 and when he said these things as they were looking on he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight this is the ascension what's the purpose of the cloud to add to the grandeur and magnificence of christ's ascension perhaps now, here John Gill has what I think is a crazy idea to check the curiosity of the disciples. Why in the world would God want to do that, Mr. Gill? Quote, this is what he says Reproving them for their curiosity in looking after Christ with their bodily eyes, who was no more in common to be seen this way, but with an eye of faith, and for their desire after his corporeal presence, which they were not to look for and as if they expected he would return again immediately where his his return will not be to the end of the world. In other words, those clouds were there to take the apostles' minds off of Jesus' body. They wanted that body back, and it was gone, and by golly, and where's he going? Well, I don't think so. I don't think he's trying to do that. I just I don't know where Gil gets it. Gil is the most imaginative person I've ever read, but he, his ideas half the time are, are out there. This ascension, by the way, was also mentioned in Luke twenty-four fifty. 50. He led them out as far as Bethany. He, Jesus, led the disciples out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted for them and was carried up into heaven. Now, notice that these disciples were looking. They saw. The disciples saw Jesus live. Let me give you that quote again. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. They saw it. Now, why is that important? They saw him bodily, as the NIV Study Bible says. Why is that important? Because this contradicts heretical preterists, who, of all the heretics that are out there, are some of my least favorite. They deny that Jesus Christ will come back bodily. And since this verse says, or the next verse says... This Jesus who was, or two verses later, verse 11 says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven? In the same way as you saw him go? Well, if you see him go bodily, by golly, he's going to come back bodily. And that's why the physical return of Jesus is in all the creed, the resurrection of the dead, the bodily sitting at the right hand of God the Father, from which he will come to judge the quick and the dead. It means he's coming back bodily. Nothing spiritual about this. He's the disciples saw him leave. We now go to verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As I just said, the same way that is. They went into heaven. What way was that? He went into heaven bodily. He's going to come back bodily. The two men in white robes were probably angels. That's a common description of angels, as the NIV Study Bible says. For example, at the tomb, Luke 24, 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them, the women, in dazzling apparel. White is a symbol of purity and wholeness. And so that's, those are two angels watching the ascension. The angels uh, told the disciples, men of Galilee... That shows that the apostles were all from the sticks, you know, because Galilee was not exactly the high, the high rent district of Israel. That doesn't mean the angels were reproaching the men of Galilee by calling them to that. Just it was an address to show that the, that the angels knew who the men were, and so that the, the disciples could say, oh, these angels know who we are. They're connected somehow with us and this ascension that we're watching. Also, the fact that they were from Galilee shows how poor people were elevated. These were not big shots that saw the resurrection and the ascension of the Son of God. Here's a quote from John Gill. To observe the rich and distinguishing grace of God in choosing such mean and contemptible persons to be the apostles of Christ and eyewitnesses of His majesty and the men of Galilee address of the angels just emphasizes that point. Now, I said already that the angel said, in the same way that you saw Jesus go up into heaven, you're going to see him come back, and that refers to his bodily ascension. Likewise, there's going to be a bodily return. This is what the NIV Study Bible says is an option. But the NIV Study Bible also has another option. You're seeing him leave with clouds and great glory, you're going to see him come back in clouds and great glory. Well, the problem with that is that, that, that the great glory is not there. They saw him leave in clouds, but they didn't see him really leave in great glory. So that kind of takes away from that argument. Matthew twenty four thirty says the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. Of what I think refers to eighty seventy, not the not the return at the end of the world. And I believe that when the angels are talking about Jesus coming in the same way, they're not talking about coming at eighty seventy. I realize the word "come" is ambiguous; it can be used to refer to the return at the end of the world or the coming in judgment on, on Jerusalem in eighty seventy. I realize that, but here he says he will come in the same way. I think he's talking about bodily. I don't think he's talking about coming in, in glory and in the clouds. Because he left in the clouds, but really there wasn't that much glory. He was just, he went up in the clouds. There's not something glorious about that. And so I don't think it's referring to just as you see Jesus go up into the clouds with glory, you're going to see him come in glory at 80.70. I think this, this verse is referring to the physical return of Jesus at the end of time, not his coming in judgment at 80.70. Let's go to verse 12. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Sabbath day's journey was well known because the rabbis had come up with an an amount of a distance that one could travel safely without doing work on the Sabbath. That distance was known, so Luke used it as a measure of distance. That's the NIV Study Bible's comment. John Gill says it's unclear exactly how far, but it's about a mile Gil's the rabbinic expert. He should know. So let's say a mile or so. I thought it was a couple miles. But anyway, it's a short, it's a walkable distance from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. So Jesus ascended. They leave. And you know, that must have been quite an awesome sight to see Jesus rise. But they left and went back to Jerusalem and they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that is where we will leave them. We'll take up their trip to Jerusalem starting in verse 13 in our next audio where they went to the upper room and replaced Judas with Matthias. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.